Turn to your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 41. Isaiah 41, the reality of God in an unreal world. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's Bibles under the seat backs in front of you, and we would love for you to take one of those out. And if you don't have a Bible, feel free to take that as your own. It's pretty amazing to watch, even at the start of a sporting season for a specific sport, let's say basketball, just got started, how you already know some teams are just absolutely awful, the Lakers. (laughs) And they're already fighting. It's a corrosive atmosphere, a corrosive culture. Have you ever experienced a a corrosive culture in a workplace? Ugh, it's just awful. A corrosive culture at home? It's terrible. I like the words of a college football coach who wrote this little short story, for example. A corrosive culture is highly toxic, characterized by a lot of conflict, frustration, gossiping, distrust, selfishness. It's not one that's fun to be around, and the turmoil and tension off the field or court almost surely affects the team. A relationship standpoint, the team is riddled with divide and distract and destruction overall. Rather than battling your opponents, you're battling yourself. Your athletes spend more time battling each other and the coaching staff because there's little to no trust. No one is on the same page working toward the same goal. And from a results standpoint, people become apathetic, even resistant towards the team's stated goals because they lose respect for their coaches or teammates. In corrosive cultures, there's a lot of selfishness, he states. In such a negative and dysfunctional environment, team members basically are forced to look out for themselves because they don't trust their teammates, they don't trust their coaches. As the name suggests, corrosive cultures eat away at people's attitudes, commitment, and chemistry much like an acid. Ultimately, people just seek to endure. People seek to survive in a dysfunctional, corrosive culture. And they try to escape it whenever possible. That's not just sports, is it? That's our culture overall. We live in a corrosive, yucky culture. Would you agree with me? You just, you know, you walk around and it's like, this stinks. So much of what's going on is just terrible. People don't trust each other. All types of stuff going on. And I will tell you right now, Isaiah explains to us in this text and throughout the whole book of Isaiah why this happens. Because just like today and just like then, the growing consensus today in our culture is that truth is a hoax. That truth is a hoax. What people used to call truth, they now call a matter of perception. In literature, for example, interpretation in literature is no longer a matter of submitting to a text, drawing out the meaning intended by the author. Instead, interpretation now means that the meanings are sparked by the reader's own response to a text, irregardless of what the author may have intended. And in that way, and everyone needs to understand this, because I'm flipping a switch real quick here, that is why the Bible to so many people can mean absolutely anything. Because they are interpreting it through a lens that their truth 
is what causes the Bible to have meaning. Not God giving it his truth. And our culture is pretty wild with this. Just a few years ago, the city of Los Angeles decided to change Christopher Columbus, the Columbus Day, to Indigenous Peoples Day so they can redefine to some degree what, who Christopher Columbus is. So this is how this all works. Christopher Columbus is not an explorer anymore. That's what it was when, when I was taught. He was an explorer. It's pretty generic. He was an explorer. Now he's a Eurocentric oppressor, right? That's, that's where it is. And the challenge of our times is the denial of objectivity. Last time I checked, he got in a boat and went around looking for stuff. That's an explorer. All of other stuff is irrelevant. Today, truth is like blowing dust in the wind. But when we deny truth, we empty our own lives of significance. When we deny truth, I want to give you a quote from someone in the early 1800s. Okay? So this isn't anything new. (laughs) Solomon says there's nothing new under the sun. I want you to hear what one person said about when interpretation of truth changes to just self-meaning. In the world, it's called tolerance. Someone was barking about this in the 1800s, early 1800s. In the world, that's called tolerance, but in hell, it's called despair. Sin believes in nothing, cares for nothing, seeks to know nothing, interferes with nothing, enjoys nothing, hates nothing, finds purpose in nothing, lives for nothing, remains alive because there is nothing for which to die. And that's our culture. That's, that's kind of where a ton of people are at. That is what secular humanism produces. But there is one claim to truth that does deserve our all, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why? Well, because at the center of his message on the cross, we see in the cross The cross declares that weakness is power, loss is gain, servanthood is greatness. The cross proves that this world does does suppress the truth and does oppose what's right. And what the cross also shows us is that God himself was willing to take the abuse from us and for us. Jesus suffered unspeakably. Why? Well, in order to love us absolutely, to show us that love, to tell us the truth. The dying love of Jesus is the only truth claim that deserves our ultimate trust. Everything centers on Christ. Isaiah is a prophet of this gospel. He writes with a clear sense of this is the truth, everyone. He sees one true God meaningfully working throughout all of history. He denies all the counter explanations of the reality, even that's going on at his time. But this God doesn't exploit us, does he? He bears our burdens. And Isaiah doesn't just assert that. He reasons with us in that. In fact, he shows God himself coming down to persuade us, equipping us with a decisive faith in a world of confusion. And I will tell you right now, as I was reading through this section this week, I was like, oh boy, God is sovereign. These words mean so much today and I would argue even more as back then. So Isaiah's thoughts in this, we're going to look at just really two points today within the first 20 verses. 
his thoughts really move in two directions. And if, if you get this and cement it into your mind, it'll flow the rest of what we're going to talk about today pretty easily. First of all, Isaiah's really getting, in, getting down to the fact in verses 1 through 7 that God's exclusive sovereignty is over all of history. God and God alone. Verses 1 through 7. And then the second part of that is that God's gracious eagerness to bear our burdens along the way is, is, is hitched to that. So let's, let's just dig in right now. I'm going to read the first seven verses for you. Follow along in your Bibles. And we are going to first look at how God alone activates history because that's what Isaiah is saying here. Coastlands, listen to me in silence. And let the people gain new strength. Let them come forward, then, then let them speak. Let us come together for judgment. Who has aroused one from the east who he calls in righteousness to his feet? He delivers up nations before him and subdues kings. He makes them like dust with his sword, as the wind-driven shaft with his bow. He... he persuades, pursues them, passing on in safety, but a way he has not been traversing with his feet. Who has performed and accomplished it? Calling forth the generations from the beginning. Here's the answer. I, the Lord, am the first and with the last. I am he. The coastlands have seen and are afraid. The ends of the earth tremble. They have drawn near and have come. Each one helps his neighbor and says to his brother, be strong. So the craftsman encourages the smelter. and He who smooths metal with the hammer encourages him who beats the anvil, saying of the soldering, it is good. And he fastens it with nails so that it will not totter. Uh, did you guys catch uh, our Bible reading today in Psalm there? Look inside your bulletin and you will see something written in that Psalm about not tottering, right? God in verse 1 is inviting the nations to settle a question. God speaking here. He's turning his eyes to the Gentile nations, including the distant coastlands. That's what the idea is here. Invites them to a debate. And you may be going, well, I don't really see that. Well, that's what the, the Hebrew there is, is giving us. Uh, another version says it this way. Let us meet together at the place of judgment. Really, it's kind of a court of law that we need to picture here. And God is... God is challenging the nations to decide something on the basis of a proper consideration of evidence. He wants us to listen to him. He invites us to speak. He wants us to make up our minds. But what do we stand to gain from engaging thoughtfully with God? You know, what's in it for us? Well, the clues there in that Next line, let the peoples gain new strength. And that should sound familiar based off of the reading of the last chapter in the last verse. They will not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. Those that wait upon the Lord will gain new strength. So God said that to his covenant people, and what we need to see and hear in chapter 41 is God is offering the whole world the same power of the Holy Spirit to live in, I, I would call it, a, a buoyant hope. And why would I say buoyant? Because it's a hope that never sinks. The waves crash, tumble upon it, all of that. And the picture is, is, I am offering you a hope that no matter what is going on, whether you're in captivity or whether you're in the land that I called you to be in, that hope is still floating and it's still strong.
God wants the nations to enjoy the promise of his glory. You know, verse 5, the coastlands have seen and are afraid. The ends of the earth tremble. They, they see it. They're, they have this fear like this is incredibly powerful. God is sovereign. From the beginning, the fullest expression of God's purpose has been one community of redemption in Jesus Christ all together. And that's what comes out of this throughout all of the Bible's journey is that. Our hope ultimately is in what? Jesus Christ. And God is not just out to win the argument. He's out to give us hope. But something has to be settled first. Before you can have hope, something has to be settled. Who controls everything? Yeah, I mean... What, is, what does verse 4 say? Uh, I, the Lord, I'm first and with last. I am he. And, and what Isaiah is doing is he's saying to them and then he's saying to us because our, our world is so into everyone comes up with their own definition of meaning of what is truth. You see, a, a widespread misconception of even uh, some people that would say, well, you know, well, God may have started this whole thing, but he walked away. He got it rolling, and he just watches from a distance. That God is not involved in our world, so lives really only have the meaning that we give to them ourselves if they have any meaning at all. And we see the natural end of that mindset. I mean, it's one of those things where it's like, wake up, people. Do you see what's happening to young people around our, our city when there is no hope? When there is no hope in Christ, what goes up? Drug use. When there is no hope in Christ, what happens? People speed down roads at 150 miles an hour and not care about anyone else because it doesn't matter. So what if I die? So what if I kill someone else? It doesn't matter. We, 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 I wish people would connect the dots because we see it live out among us all the time. We see it in our families. And, and that verses 2 and 3, who stirred up from the east, who, who victory meets at every step. By the way, he's, he's talking about a certain person there, and we'll get to that in a minute. But the question is, is in verses 2 and 3, there's a question and there's an answer. The question is not what, but it's who. Isaiah is not a secular humanist, if you haven't figured it out. When he looks at the movement sweeping across history, he does not ask about class economics. Any of the stuff that people try to ask now, he asks about a person. And we need to learn to ask Isaiah type of questions about our world today. Do we think this just happened, whatever has just happened? Or do we think this is God at work? Are we involved in chance? Or are we smack dab in the middle of providence? Is, is history just some sort of cyclical, weird thing that we're stuck in? With events reoccurring on a seasonal pattern? Or is history taking us towards something? towards a final battle, towards a final consummation? Are we part of a larger story, or is the meaning of our lives up to us alone? That's what Isaiah's doing here. And if all we have is the bits and pieces of our own subjectivity to work with, who can say what is right or wrong, right? 
and what is false and what is beautiful and what is ugly and what is meaningful and what is stupid. There is a Russian author from the late 1800s. If you haven't caught it, this week was 1800s reading for me. (laughs) But there was a Russian author from the late 1800s that articulated the implications of banning God from the questions of life. So once again, I just, the reason I'm giving you these people from the past is that this is not new. What's going on now? He said this, Immortality of the soul does not exist when you remove God from life. Immortality of the soul does not exist, therefore there is no virtue, therefore everything is permitted. Wow, sounds like uh, now. But when you ask the question, who is in charge? And by taking God seriously into account that he is in charge, Isaiah's biblical way of thinking leads us forward inevitably, not not immediately, towards the question of all questions. And that is, If God's in charge of everything, who was Jesus? How do we account for this man who changed the course of history, not by conquering, but by suffering in the human sense? But we know in the spiritual sense, boy, did he conquer. As as the Holy Spirit, when you become a believer, and as the Holy Spirit is in you, and you are made new, as Scripture says, and the sanctification process starts in your life, and it's that journey of one step by one step in growing closer to Christ, and this new awareness of who Christ is, it floods all of a sudden your life with this all-encompassing meaning. You see your life actually as a meaningful subplot in a huge divine drama. You see the cross of of Christ as, as God coming down in love to take upon himself the guilt of human rebels bent on ignoring him. And as Paul says, and I'm the chief of all those rebels, that he still saved me. And now he's calling out the nations, from the nations, a people for himself. That they will be drawn up into his incredible, joyful family. God is glorifying himself by communicating to us the wonders of his love, his redemptive love, the outpouring of divine fullness through Christ. This is the meaning of all of human history, and you can be a part of it. Therefore, the first step toward God might be to look again at your life and stop asking what. What about this? What about this? What about that? And start asking who. Who's in charge of this? Whose plan is this? Who is directing this? And if your answer is God, that changes everything. Isaiah is saying that God is activating human history. He's not just activating it. He's always active in it including the conquerors who rock the world scene. And that's where I get this here. Verse 2 mentions a person from the east. Cyrus is that person, later named by name later in Isaiah. Why would he mention Cyrus of all people? Because Isaiah's writing to the Jewish people in exile in Babylon in the 6th century B.C. And as the decades of that century wore on and the exiles uh, became increasingly discouraged, Cyrus leaps into historical uh, prominence. He conquers Babylon in 539, liberates the peoples held captive there, including the Jewish people, and moves them back to their homelands. And God is saying beforehand, oh, by the way, I'll be doing this. I'll be drawing this dude named Cyrus 
down to bow to my feet and do my plan. And he may not even understand that it's my plan. He'll, he'll think it's his. And as Cyrus rides triumphantly towards world dominion, Isaiah wants everyone to see something different. God's at work. Who has performed and done all this, calling to generations from the beginning, I, the Lord, the first, and with the last, I am he. And not only did God set up human events in motion at this way at the beginning, his hand is on the helm all the way through the first and with the last. When God launched history, he did not unleash independent forces. He's the first cause. He is the last effect. He is the final nanosecond of time is directed by him and him alone. So you may want to write this down. Cyrus's life in 539 was not a fluke. Neither is yours today. Every event within time, including your life, is a demonstration of I am he. That's how significant all of us are. God's inviting the whole world to think that through. He provides his sovereign presence in, the case, in this case by predicting the rise of Cyrus over a century before it happens. Prophecy is a good argument for God's sovereignty. But as Cyrus appears going from strength to strength, how do the nations respond? It's so funny. Even in the midst of what should be plain, what do we see in verses 5 through 7? Nations flee back to their idols. God moves in history, invites nations to take a close look. What do they do? They just reinforce the idols that they create. They long for stability and the buffeting of life, but their blindness leaves them with no recourse but to manufacture their own gods because they're blind. God is on the move right front in, in front of them. People feel the effects of his presence, but they feel it with dread. They cheer one another up then with their own made-up ideologies. Chesterton said, when people stop believing in God, they don't believe in nothing. They believe in everything. Have you ever seen someone drive by in a car that's got idols and a cross and crystals and all of these things all over their car to protect them? That's what that's living that out. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do all of these different things to protect my car. All of these man-made idols, all of these different stuff, and I'll, I'll sprinkle in Jesus just in case he's true. But that's what a lot of people do with their whole life. When fearful people lose their sense of God, what do they do? They join together and construct their own meanings, their own myths. And the, the artificial fact of it all is the world's guilty secret in Romans 1, 18 through 32. When God says, all right, you guys are just clueless. And he hands it over to the reprobate mind. Now, in verse 7, when the craftsman says, it is good, here in verse 7, Isaiah hears a parody, actually, of the creation account. In Genesis 1, God declares his creation as good. But here, the frightened little people begin looking at the stuff that they're putting together, and they pronounce it as good. And that's what people are reduced to in some way or another. If we don't delight in the sovereign majesty of God in history. We don't acknowledge him as he is my mighty fortress. He is my mighty God. You're left shoring up idols rather than resting in the arms of Christ. So the first thing Isaiah does is point us to the God who is with us in a troubled world. God's at work. 
is God at work in our life today? The answer is yes. Because I've already answered in my life who is in charge. God. God's glorious salvation is coming. He's moved, everything's moving towards that goal. Fortified with a clear awareness of God, I can face anything. You know, this, this rubber hits the road. Oh no, interest rates are over 7%. Okay. God's in charge. I'm, I'm not. I'm not going to worry about that stuff. Oh no, gas prices are $22 a gallon. You know what? God's in charge. I'm not going to I'm not going to let that destroy my day. Matter of fact, Jenny and I were driving back from a conference we were at a few weeks ago in Arizona and I was we were on the phone with a person um uh, talking some stuff over for uh ministry stuff and there was this big huge truck in front of us, you know, jacked up with huge tires, no mud flaps. You can see where this thing's going. The rock hit us at approximately 70 miles an hour, front right part of the windshield, and it was loud. It was loud, and it cracked that puppy. I mean, it was a nice spider web of stuff. You ever had that happen? Who's in charge? I mean, it's even silly stuff like that. Who's in charge? I think there would have been a time I would have responded differently. And it wouldn't have been good. But we were both like, hey, look, windshield's cracked, probably got to fix that. Not, hey, I'm going to pull the gun out and take it out on this guy. <laughs> Which seems to be the result of what a lot of people do today. But you know what I'm saying? It's just like, it's just even in little things like that. It's like, God's in charge. And it was funny, even this week I was going to get it fixed on Friday. So I'm sitting there, you know how it is, between 11 and 1? Between 11 and 1, we'll be there. I'm sitting around between 11 and 1 and 1 and 2 and 2 and 3. Finally, the guy texts me and says, hey, I'm not going to make it today. Can I come Monday morning and I'll take $100 off? And I'm all, yes. <laughs> God's in charge. Got a lot of work done between 11 and 3. And I got $100 less. I'm totally okay with that. It's just even simple stuff like that. It changes who you are as you grow in Christ, how you respond to anything. How you respond to anything. And that's what Isaiah is getting at in verses 8 through 20, is that God alone, when we trust in him, when we answer who is in charge, and we say God alone is in charge, which then means we have to ask, who is Jesus? And if Jesus is God's son, then Jesus is in charge. The Holy Spirit is within me. The Holy Spirit is guiding me and directing me. I am now living my life differently because Isaiah says, God alone emboldens us. Not some self-help book that gives you 243 ways to try to deal with life. Starting in verse 8, But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, who I have chosen, descendant of Abraham, my friend, you whom I have taken from the ends of the earth and called from its remoteness part and sent, said to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not rejected you. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Behold, all those who are in 
angered at you will be shamed and dishonored. Those who contend with you will be as nothing and will perish. You will seek those who quarrel with you, but will not find them. Those who war with you will be as nothing and non-existent. For I am the Lord your God who upholds your right hand, who says to you, do not fear, I will help you. God upholds his faithful servant. God longs for us to draw strength from his greatness. God chose us. He called us. He's committed to us. And people who understand that in their hearts are unstoppable. That's what happens when you grow in the Lord. You become what? More than conquerors. The word but there in the original language at the beginning of these verses is important, drawing a contrast. The nations nervously prop up their helpless, homemade saviors, but the sovereign of the universe chooses us, upholds us by his righteous right hand that has no error. God is saying, my paraphrase here, I want you to know what you can expect from me. My presence, my strength, my help, my perfect support. He calls us his servant, and he's not putting us down when he calls us that. He's saying we're his responsibility. That's what he's saying. God's saying, you, I am responsible for you. That's what a good master does, right? He's saying we're his responsibility and he will act in an incredible, perfect way. I need that assurance in life. When we live for God in this world, we stand out, don't we? We're, we will become more and more awkward as the world becomes more and more weird. Isn't that kind of weird and awkward when you think about it? The more weird the world gets, the more weird Christians look. It's because we don't match, and it goes even further apart. We'll draw fire. How many of you have already drawn fire for being a Christian? You can raise your hand. Yeah, it's true. It's there. It's going to happen. But totally apart from any imagined strength of our own, God is our shield and defender. So this is the incredible depth of my understanding sometimes in life. I wrote these words out after reading this. This is for Scott's use only, but I will give it to you as pearls of wisdom. Scott, do not chicken out. Don't chicken out. I'm sure that will be categorized somewhere in the analogs of theological time. As the great Scott Julian said, don't chicken out. But that's what, that's what I take away from this. God has demonstrated the value of my life by saying, I am your shield. I am your defender. That's why Paul can write in Philippians 1, do not be frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ. You should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. But in the meantime, God is there for us, right? Verse 13. I am the Lord your God who upholds your right hand, who says to you, do not fear, I will help you. Do not raise your hand on this one. 
just ponder this, but are you a fearful person? Do you gravitate towards the path of least resistance? Maybe it's because we're relying on the weakness of idols. And God understands that, thus this message. He's assuring us in the most powerful way possible, I am not like the idols. I actually will prop you up. Fear not, live for me with an audacious, awesome faith. Because I, God, am the one who is holding up your arm, holding up your hand. Now, that's one of three assurances in verses 8 through 20. The next one there is kind of funny in verses 14 through 16. He transforms his worm into a threshing sledge. This means absolutely nothing to us today. But let's read this because once we understand it, it does mean something. Do not fear, you worm Jacob, you men of Israel. I will help you, declares the Lord, and your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Behold, I have made you a new sharp threshing sledge with double edges. You will thrush the mountains and pulverize them and will make the hills like shaft. You will winnow them and the wind will carry them away and the storm will scatter them. But you will rejoice in the Lord. You will glory in the Holy One of Israel. Now, that was laughable to those that read it then. But going back to chapter 40, God is saying that there was a a moral topography that was going on in chapter 40, and the whole world would be reordered to make way for the glory of the Lord. The world as it is now isn't suitable for the display, awesome display of the Lord. Everything is going to change. The little wiggly worm that kind of eats the junky stuff of the wheat and different things like that, that's just, you, you step on it. You're like, oh, that's a worm. The valley's going to be lifted up. The mountains will be made low, so forth. Now, in chapter 41, God is saying that he intends to use us to do this. But we're totally inadequate. We're, God makes a worm. We are the worm, everyone. We are the worm. How many of you people, if you went to them today, said, hey, I just want you to know that God says that you're a worm? probably wouldn't work well. So I would explain this to them a little bit better than that. But the point is, is that we are all sinners in need of a Savior. We all cannot get back to God on our own. Israel couldn't do it on their own. They needed God to call them out. But he makes a worm into a threshing sledge And that is simply a tool that separates the wheat and the chaff. And it's a really cool tool that was used up until even the 1800s in the United States. You just go around in circles with it. And if it was sharp enough, man, it did wonders in separating the wheat and the chaff and how that all works. I've seen videos of it. It's pretty cool. I've seen dull ones. And them try to use those, and they don't work. But double-edged sharp ones, it's incredible how they work. And so that's the picture here. God takes something worthless and meaningless because it's broken and changes it into the best, coolest tool, and this is key, tool possible. Because what are we called to do? Serve him. So why in the world would God save us and then make us lousy servants? No, he gives you a new heart, new clothes, new spirit, new everything. And that's a picture we see here. His strength alone. And our privilege is to thresh into smithereens every obstacle. That's our job. 
So let's get on with it. We got the power of the Holy Spirit with us. Don't be a wimp. Don't check it out. Move forward in Christ. And in the process, he's going to refresh the pilgrims. The afflicted and needy in verse 17 are seeking water, but there is none, and their tongue is parched with thirst. I, the Lord, will answer them myself as the God of Israel. I will not forsake them. I will open rivers on the bare heights and springs in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water in the dry land fountains of water. I will put the cedar in the wilderness and the acacia in the myrtle and the olive tree. I will place the juniper in the desert together with the box tree and the cypress that they may see and recognize and consider and gain insight as well, that the hand of the Lord has done this, and the Holy One of Israel has created it. Do not be poor and needy as a Christian and parched with thirst. Because that's the picture of someone that's not a Christian. We've been made complete. God is saying, he's presenting himself as the refreshment. Who feeds us? Who waters us? God alone. Jesus said in John 7, words that match this, right? If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And what is God's ultimate purpose in lavishing himself upon us? That men may see and know and may consider and understand together the hand of the Lord has done this. We are the living examples of a changed life. And people will go... (laughs) I knew Julian way back when, and that is not the Scott Julian I knew. Only God could do that. That that should be what happens. Here's the beauty of all this, everyone. As we round the last corner here, we get the mercy. God gets the glory. Going back to the question of who, in verse 2, that's grander than you may think it is. The one stirring up this turbulent history is really not someone to dread. By his sovereign greatness, he pours life-giving refreshment upon dry people. Water outpouring symbolizes this bountiful salvation overflowing with the Holy Spirit. When thirsty people seek that water in prayer, God answers with the greatest gift in the universe, himself, in his fullness. Luke 11, verses 11 through 13 says that. He promises not just morning dew or a light sprinkling, but rivers and fountains and pools and springs. We need that much of God, right? I don't need a dew in the morning. I need a blast of a fire hydrant of God every single day. Life is exhausting. And you often can be dry, but God more than compensates that with himself. And by refreshing us, God increases his own glory. The outflowings of the renewing grace upon his people reminds us to consider how good he is. And that's why he pours out refreshment from heaven. And as we serve his purpose, we serve his purpose by enjoying his abundant goodness in the sight of the nations. We need to seek that outpouring, embrace the fullness of who God is. The most convincing witness in a truth-denying world 
is not an apologetic argument of our own brilliance. The most convincing answer to our times is to manifest God in this world's midst. And Isaiah is saying, stake your life on it. This is all about your very survival. We as Christians, we need to live on John chapter 14 through 16. We need to live on Romans 8. We need to live on 1 Corinthians chapters 1 and 2. All of these passages about the Holy Spirit working in our lives. We need to think of God and treat God and pray to God in keeping with his own word. We need to believe that the sovereign Holy Spirit can help and strengthen and refresh. God makes us invincible. So is your faith defined like that? Because once again, it goes back, have you made yourself what you are or are you living proof of what God can do? If you've gone no further than what your arms and legs and talent can carry you and see no more than your own eyes can show you and taste no more than what your thoughts can convey to you, you're lost. You won't live boldly for God. You won't have the meaning that is needed beyond yourself. May the Holy Spirit lead us. And maybe it needs to start today in private, in a room, and weep and repent. And say, you know what? I need to look to God alone. Authentic Christianity is a miracle. It's not management. Give up on yourself and delight in the sovereign Lord. Delight in Him as the Savior you need. He alone will fill your life with the meaning that is really needed to live. And when that happens, as Isaiah lets this know here, they may see and recognize and consider and gain insight that the hand of the Lord has done this. He's lifted your hand. He's lifted your life. That the hand of the Lord has done this and the Holy One of Israel has created this. And that is only possible through Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. Lord, we thank you for this time that we have had together in your word today. May we 